Welcome to Socialist Sound, a production of Seattle DSA. I'm your host, Ty Moore. For this episode, we have two excellent interviews on the fight to fully fund social housing in Seattle. Following the historic victory of Initiative 135 in February, which established a new, radically democratic, tenant-led, publicly-owned social housing developer in Seattle, we wanted to explore the next steps in the fight to make this vision a reality. First, I sat down with Tiffany McCoy, co-chair of House Our Neighbors, the coalition who led the fight. Second, I interviewed two leaders of Seattle DSA, Sydney Province and Robbie Khalil, to get their perspective on the fight ahead. Seattle DSA played a big role in the victory of Initiative 135, from collecting signatures to get social housing on the ballot in the first place, to knocking doors in the cold, wet Seattle winter to get out the vote for the February special election. Both of these interviews turned out great, and my interview with Tiffany, an old friend, went especially uh, longer than I'd anticipated. After re-listening to the conversations, I decided this justified a two-parter rather than cutting solid material. So for this episode, you'll hear the first half of each interview, and we'll finish out both conversations in a follow-up episode. This podcast is only possible because hundreds of Seattle DSA members are contributing monthly to sustain my part-time position as a chapter's communication organizer alongside a part-time chapter organizer staff position. To make these positions sustainable, to continue this podcast, we still need to increase the chapter's income by over $2,000 a month. With your support, we can continue to develop a strong socialist media here in Seattle. Please go to seattledsa.org backslash podcast to sign up as a monthly sustainer today. I sat down with Tiffany McCoy on March 24th at her office at Real Change, nestled in the heart of Pioneer Square. Tiffany is the advocacy director at Real Change alongside Ty Reed. She is co-chair of House Our Neighbors, the coalition leading the fight for social housing in Seattle. Tiffany, it is really great to reconnect. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you, Ty. I'm so glad we get to talk about this. I think, you know, it's exciting to me because we have so much political history together and a friendship that's lasted through some political challenges. Uh, So I was kind of taken aback when we were texting yesterday and trying to figure out the last time we actually saw each other in person. It was a full two years ago. Yeah. And that was a little before my daughter was born and we met just to catch up, but you also had a trunk full of hand-me-downs from your daughter for my daughter, and, and we're still using that diaper bag you gave nice. us. Yep. Nice. <laughs> yep. So yeah, I think, you know, I'm glad that, yeah, for the second episode of our podcast, you just happen to also be a central leader of one of the most important political victories for working people in Seattle in recent years, and I, I think it's going to be a great discussion. So let's just get right into it and start with the basics. Your website, houseourneighbors.org, has some excellent videos and linked articles explaining what social housing is, what I-135 um, will deliver. But for any listeners who weren't paying attention over the last year, give me your three-minute stump speech on what exactly social housing is and what will Initiative uh, 135 uh, do exactly. Yeah, so social housing um, in a nutshell is decommodified housing. It's taking housing out of the private market, out of the speculative market, treating housing as a public good, not as a commodity to make a profit on. We, with Initiative 135, are going to create the Seattle Social Housing Developer. Social housing is also permanently affordable. It is publicly owned forever and creates those cross-class mixed-income communities. Um, which really leads into just social cohesion. Right now, how we do affordable housing is um, segregating out by by income. That's because of design by the federal government, which I know we'll get into later in the interview. But if we really, truly want to address the affordability crisis, not even just in Seattle, but nationwide, we have to bring in another model of housing that is wildly successful across the globe that we do not do here in the United States, which is social housing. Right now, in the U.S., you either are on the private market or you qualify under the federal government under these very restrictive covenants on affordability. And we also know there are 
years long wait list for that. Mm-hmm. So instead of just continuing to like go about status quo, reinventing the wheel with like affordability, why don't we bring in this model internationally that treats housing as a public good, like we do with education, um, roads, fire departments, etc. So yeah, the initiative, which passed on February 14th of this year with a 14 point margin, will create the first social housing developer in the city of Seattle. It's actually the first social housing developer nationwide. And I know that we'll get into those details, but that's that's why we need it. Because if we're being honest with ourselves and with the public, what we're doing, regardless of historic investments at the local and the state level, will never get us out of this crisis. And once we're honest about that, we can actually start looking to what other models we need to introduce here. That makes a lot of sense to me. But what were the main arguments of your opposition? Like, um, and how did you answer them? And, you know, I know there's an organized opposition, but also just talking to voters, um, your canvassers, et cetera, what were the main concerns and objections that that you heard out there? Yeah, great question. And I'm going to break it up into two parts. I'm going to focus on like the organizational opposition and then, yeah, just like voters' right, right. Uh, concerns and, and um, opposition. So we had two different phases of opposition in the campaign. And one came right after, shortly after we drafted or submitted the draft to the city uh, clerk here in Seattle. Um, the Housing Development Consortium, which is an amalgamation of private developers, banks, nonprofits that do affordable housing in the Puget Sound area. They came out and put out a letter um, very publicly on their website saying that I-135 is a distraction from Mm -hmm. the housing levy that's coming up this fall and that we are trying to, that not only, sorry, that not only is it a distraction, but also we are undermining the current affordability framework and trying to set out on a new path. It it was not a very, it was a very negative letter. Um, So they were, yeah, opposed from then on. Later, they turned neutral after we actually qualified to be on the ballot. They did not make public that they were neutral. We only knew that through like backroom discussions. So Hmm. we made sure that the media knew that they had switched to neutral because HDC was doing nothing to let everyone know that they actually had moved to neutral. And I mean, they had their official reasons for opposing that you just outlined. But, you know, I know from lots of discussions, there's other reasons, you know, that they felt threatened in a certain sense. Um, or, or what would you say? What was the sort of political economic logic that, you know, made them so um, hostile to the initiative at the beginning? I would say the housing levy was a a real concern, Um, but I would remind folks that the housing levy always passes with 65, 70 plus percent of voter approval. Voters want to invest in affordable housing. Um, So I can understand that that's like a material concern for them. I just don't think it was like evidentially borne out based on every seven years of that going. I would say, though, if you were to break it up into what were the private developers that are also part of HDC, I think their concerns were economic because it is another competing force that is also not aligned with that development consortium. It's not the same set of relationships and overlap. So I would say it's, yeah, an economic concern of potential uh, competition for land and, and building and contracts, et cetera. And I don't mean to denigrate and I won't put words in your mm-hmm. mouth, but, you know, our current housing eco or affordable housing ecosystem, the nonprofits and particularly private developers, you know, there's excellent people doing excellent work trying to do the best they can in a messed up system mm-hmm. but there's also a, a economic and political logic of just trying to you know make sure some high paid NGO leaders and private sector developers get paid grow their portfolio and that you know I think in a systemic way does not advance the needs of mass affordability but is more, about you know catering to the specific needs of this or that institution and seeing their um, specific narrow interest uh, developed. So the whole concept of a social housing developer, especially one that wants to be expansive, is not going to, uh, yeah, is somewhat competitive with that. At least that's my read. No, I, you're spot on. I think that's absolutely correct. Um, at the risk of getting on a tangent, like we, you know, made political and communicative choices after this um, opposition. Do we want to go into what you're laying out there as our strategy for winning at the ballot? Or 
do we focus on the vision and what could be in Seattle? We chose the the latter. Also, just it seems politically foolish um, and just frankly stupid to fight against nonprofits um, yeah, while the yeah. private market is out there gobbling up the rental market. But no, you're absolutely right. Like we have the, the hegemonic idea in this country of housing is those two paths. It's either the private market or you qualify for affordable housing and you are lucky enough to have got in at the, to the top of the wait list. That's it. And like that is so dominant, not even just at the top and folks that do bring in lots of money, but even at the, the lowest levels. And that's the other part of the opposition is folks that actually are part of a displacement coalition um, that were fighting against the initiative saying that we weren't focusing enough on the lowest income. Right. So they couldn't even grab like grasp their heads around this idea of like cross-class communities and the fact that folks that make more can actually contribute to the overall cost of the building and bring in folks that are of lower income who also maybe don't have the correct immigration status to qualify for right. federal financing or have a criminal record where they don't qualify under current affordable housing mechanisms. So just this is a political struggle that we all have to do who are fighting for social housing nationwide for years to come. And yeah, there's just lots of lessons we we learned throughout this. Um, so it's just so dominant. I watched that uh, debate that you uh, had with with that coalition um, on the Seattle channel a few months back. And what struck me is they just had this zero-sum game mentality, which you understand. You know, if the federal government and mm -hmm. the other granting agencies have a small pot of money, you know, their argument was, well, let's just funnel it to those most in need, which if you can't imagine another system or another better way, you can, you know, there's a certain logic to that. But I think what they, what that guy you were debating, I forget his name, but failed to understand, it seemed, is, you know, social housing, because it has a much more um, sustainable financing mechanism of market rate renters paying in and effectively subsidizing lower income renters, that the possibility of expanding that model on a much larger scale and thereby providing more total affordable housing, more money for the lowest income, he just wasn't hearing that. Yeah, exactly. I, I would clarify to say like there might be some market rate, you know, in the buildings, but we've done a couple of like pro formas that show that even those that are making 120% of their area media income would be paying less than um, market rate right now. But no, you're absolutely correct. And that's that's what I, where I'm getting into like this hegemony of like the current thinking around housing, because as you said, like John Fox with that with a, that coalition that came out um, at the end of the a campaign in opposition, they have this scarcity mindset because, yes, there are only so many vouchers from Section 8 every year. There's only so much project-based vouchers from HUD and the low-income housing tax credit. We've already tapped out on it this year. No one can apply for those at the state level until that starts up again. So no affordable housing is even able to like go into the hopper because of those restrictions. So if they're looking at it through that lens of like, this is all that we have from the federal government, Damn right, there's like a lot of scarcity there. But yeah, this inability to look outside of that like really confined space that what about if people that are making more are actually subsidizing those that make less? Like it's just unfathomable. I want to talk about how you and How's Our Neighbors decided to take on this more pioneering and risky strategy of pushing a public social housing uh, ballot initiative, a model that the vast majority of Seattle voters we're totally unfamiliar with. Um, you were up against the widespread perception that the American experiments in public housing have been a failure, a perception that's fueled both by the very real segregation and ghettoization that U.S. public housing you know, was designed effectively to, to create, but also the perception formed by decades of neoliberal and right-wing you know, propaganda and fear-mongering that you know, this was a total failure. And in that context, it struck me, I remember, when you first announced you were doing this as very bold, but also possibly ill-conceived, um, that, you know, would Seattle voters be prepared to endorse and support this kind of policy wonkish on the one hand, but and, and pretty new idea? Um, after all, you know, you and I, just a year before, we were in coalition meetings talking about um, running a, a very different kind of ballot initiative um, but that was much more familiar, raising taxes on big business, sort of Amazon tax round two to fund a massive expansion of tiny homes and affordable housing. Again, you know, basically more for the existing model, more money contributing to the needs of the 
you know, folks at the mm-hmm. bottom of the ladder, which, you know, is important. Um, that would have faced sharp opposition, but at least that was a familiar idea. <laughs> at least yeah. that's something that Seattle voters could quickly say, yeah, okay, we've supported this in the past. We're going to support it again. So why did you decide that creating a new social housing developer was necessary? And what made you confident enough that you could build a winning coalition and convince voters of this unfamiliar vision? Yeah, like really great questions. And I also uh, yeah appreciate your honesty about what we were embarking on and how that could be ill-conceived because, yeah, I was just, we were just gung-ho going forward. What happened, happened, but at least we were educating. I would say to set it in the political context too, we had just had, you know, the 20, um, was it the 2020 election? What was that recent mayor? What was the last election? I think uh, 2021, right? 2021. So yeah, you had this super right wing, like criminalizing homelessness city attorney come in. You had Bruce Harrell who won. um, And then you had, you know, Sarah Nelson who defeat like a a steering committee member of the coalition. And we wanted to also make sure that there was something for like the left in Seattle to grasp onto, to be inspired by, to um, build towards, because it was like pretty grim looking. Mm -hmm. So that in like kind of really... um, uh, influenced our decision. But I would say too, like, we didn't want to try to go through the council for anything because it, you are just giving away pieces of what you want all throughout that whole process. And by the end, it's it's a shell of what you wanted. And we didn't want to do that. I would say too, like, we have the backing of Real Change, which is where I work full time, where we have staff who are able to be using their time for this. So we do have that, like, that that privilege. But yeah, we knew through a public developer that ultimately the mayor had to sign off on it they could actually just veto the whole thing and then that's the end of it. So we wanted to build up the left power after that 2021 election. We knew that what we are currently doing is not enough, will never be enough, was never even set up to be enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and really when we go out and just talk to renters, what, what, how much more money do you need your rent to increase before you're out of the city? That was like some of our opening lines before while we were drafting. And um they were like, oh, this much, this much. And that alone was galvanizing to renters. And if we're just talking to renters on the street, this was the easiest idea to pitch to them. Really? Period. They're just talking about how much it costs. And then if you are actually currently in affordable housing, talking about how the quality is less than the market rate of the same building, et cetera, et cetera. But getting into that. So that's why we that's why we went that route. We wanted to have a total control over what the governing board would be for the developer. Because if it also goes through the city council, you have those exact same players over and over and over again that just sit on boards and are not coming up with new ideas. So we just went forward because we know that what we're not that we're what we're doing isn't working. We knew this other model and we just are a coalition that's very scrappy and just got off of defeating a, a really harmful charter amendment and knew we wanted to actually put forward a vision of what we do want as opposed to always, you know, fighting against like capitalism and the powers that be. What if like community members came together and presented their vision? Could that look like? And one other element of that vision that we haven't had a chance to get into, but I think is really important and would have been totally ground to a pulp if you tried to go through city council Mm -hmm. is the democratic governance model, which is pretty unique, even in the examples of social housing around the world that I've, I've looked at. The fact that you guys put into your initiative that renters at the building level and all the way up to the administrative body running the social housing developer are going to be elected out of the tenants themselves. Could you get into that a little bit? Yeah, no, that's that's really exciting. We got the idea of the, the governance councils in each building actually from the last year's California AB 2053. Um, that's, you know, they're going through the state level, um, which is really significant. And I hope they win this year. But of course, like you just said, going through the state legislature, getting renters to be the majority on the board is completely off the table. So they're like, you know, give to renters was to have these governance councils. But we knew when we were, and this is the part of drafting that took the longest is this board, because we got to just make it. So like how many are on there? What is what is the demographics? What is the background? And we always knew it needed to be a renter majority because as you know from organizing here for so long and, and myself, renters have zero voice in their living conditions. Um, and they have really no power except for when they collectively organize. And we've won really important renter protections through the city council. But as you and I know, 
um, once city council changes, all of those reforms we won in the past mm-hmm. are going to be going away. So why not enshrine all of those values into the governing structure? So there's really no question about having it be a renter majority. So it wasn't necessarily like some deep confidence that this new idea was going to pass, but you were like, fuck it, we need to, <laughs> we need to do what's necessary yeah. and, and, and went for it. Yeah, and that's why we also have passive house standards as the mandate for new buildings. Like never in council are you going to get um, also union built housing. That's also the highest green standard and a renter governing board. So if we're going to go for this, why not include all of the things that we all value so deeply? Looks like Seattle voters agreed. So yeah. congratulations. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit more about the campaign itself. You faced some serious challenges. I think uh, when we spoke on the phone last summer, shortly after you all missed the deadline to get enough signatures to qualify for the November ballot, I remember also at that point having serious reservations <laughs> over whether or not you could win a special election in mid-February, literally on Valentine's Day, the weekend following the Super Bowl. You know, that seemed like a scenario for a lower working class turnout, a lower renter turnout, where the wealthy uh older white uh, demographic of Seattle who just always votes, who feel entitled to run this city, mm-hmm. um, where they would dominate the election. Um, so I was worried. And, you know, we in Tacoma, you know, as you know, we were we're, uh, we're running Tacoma for all. Mm-hmm. It was planning to run a ballot initiative. We are running a ballot initiative this year. But we were debating late last summer, early fall, should we run a social housing mm-hmm. ballot initiative like you all are doing in Seattle or a more um, less pioneering approach of mm-hmm. Uh, a tenant rights ballot initiative catch Tacoma up to um, the standards of tenant rights in Seattle and, and a lot of other areas. And after you missed the deadline, you know, we were afraid, well, they're going to lose in February. We don't want to put a ballot initiative in Tacoma after yeah. voters just knocked it down in Seattle. So we kind of took the conservative route. And I mean, it's a good ballot initiative. I'm very excited about it. We're running mm-hmm. a tenant rights ballot initiative, tenant bill of rights, we're calling it in Tacoma. But, you know, I thought a lot about this. I was worried you were going to lose, yeah. but you didn't. So how um, how did you build such an impressive coalition of labor, of community groups, a very racially diverse coalition, and even some of the nonprofit housing providers, as you were saying, who were initially threatened, at least I know Lehigh mm-hmm. did come out in support, if mm-hmm. I understand correctly. Um, you raised over $200,000. Tell me a bit more about how all that came together, how you navigated the politics and overcame uh, some of your initial challenges. Yeah. And I think that what you're getting into with how you're, if I may just like focus on what you all are doing in Tacoma, I think that that's actually just wise. You, has your coalition, I'm sorry, can I ask, is is your coalition like been together and fighting for stuff together thus far? Like, have you done a big thing, like an initiative together before? This will be the biggest thing by far. We only came together about a year and a half ago. And really, it's mainly been a project of Tacoma DSA. Um, We now have the Pierce County Central Labor Council support and are building a broader coalition. We have a lot of goodwill from a lot of groups, but you know, it's nothing on the scale of the coalition that you all were able to establish um, over the last few years. Right. But you're doing that now and you're doing that through something that you all want to do to like set the stage for the next exactly. fight. Exactly. Yep. You're building all of those relationships, which were critical to us. We did not come, How's Our Neighbors did not start with this initiative. We started fighting against Charter Amendment 29. That's right. Something that labor and a lot of quote unquote progressive groups would not um, put their hat in to say, no, we don't want this to pass at the ballot. And remind people what Charter... Oh yeah, Charter Amendment 29 was pushed forward by big business, like the same players... Chamber of Commerce, the Downtown Seattle Association, like all these really um, huge billionaires here. And it was really cast um, in this gross way of Compassion Seattle. They said that they wanted to build 2,000 new shelter beds, create behavioral health, and all these things that, like, you know, we also want. But buried in there very clearly was also enshrining sweeps as a cornerstone of homelessness policy. And we were not going to stand idly by while that went forward and was, like, enshrined in our constitution. And labor groups we talked to, progressive groups we talked to were like, oh, yeah, we agree with you in, like, in values and spirit, but we've seen the polling and, like, we're not going to... Gonna, we can't like go out there and just like fight against this thing, but we did, and that's where we started. So that's how house our, our neighbors began. Started. Yeah. yeah, it was that, and so then we like had a retreat after that, and like let's put forward our vision. So what you're doing is just actually really smart. I mean, I know we want immediate wins for working and poor people, but also we have to set up this 
system in order to do that? And also, like, how do we organize together, like, in ways that are, are genuine and where, you know, if disagreements come up, you're so sorry to get on a phone tangent. I'm just saying, like, those things are critical. So we already had that. We had we did have labor groups come out and support. We had folks that actually had endorsed um, Compassion Seattle come out instead to endorse our end. So we had a footing. We had like a name. We had that. So that's how we went forward with that. But as far as um, some of the politics and like the initial challenges, we just like I said earlier in the interview, we we could have went, you know, not even necessarily negative. We could have really lambasted the current affordable housing mechanisms and how broken they are. And they are from the federal government side completely. But is that going to incite or excite voters about what we're trying to do? Some would say politically, yes, that's the way we should have went or that we should have focused on the funding mechanism first. But we wanted to put forward a vision of positivity and hope and what could be and doing that through like imagery and visuals and like the fact that you can afford to live in Seattle forever if you want to, that you can have access to high quality green buildings forever if you want to. So yeah, there were definitely challenges with the opposition coming up, this idea I mean, we had issues with like public housing in the past, but that's where like specifically our black community members in our coalition being able to with like a trusted voice go and speak with those individuals that were like kicked out of Yesler Terrace, for instance, and whatnot was was critical because my voice is not going to be as impactful as theirs. And I think, you know, one of the main challenges that the socialist movement has, you know, there's this saying that I see on memes, et cetera, it's easier for people to imagine the apocalypse than it is, you know, a socialist future or a vision where everybody's mm. needs are taken care of, a good society. And I think that's one of the main tasks that the left has in this country is putting forward a positive yeah. vision that people can believe in. Like it is possible to build affordable housing for all, but it takes, you know, a political movement, it takes an initiative yeah. and it takes a big picture vision and figuring out what the steps today are to arrive at that vision. So I thought that was a very powerful um, element that you all emphasize of putting that vision of social housing on an expansive level forward. Yeah. And I would say too, just like at the more like you know, canvassing focus, like that strategy, like we spent most of our time actually in the 37th legislative district, which, you know, if we went with a consultant would have said, don't spend time there, spend time on those white homeowners who, who always vote. But we also want to be building community all the time and bringing people into like our vision. So we spent a lot of time in that district. And we also spent a significant time on renters. And this was where like DSA Seattle was incredibly essential with just like, unabashed desire to go and just like knock on apartment doors and get in and talk to renters like we always knew from the beginning we will win this through renters if we do not turn renters out we will lose and having dsa was critical to doing that um and then also like having lists of renters that we could text bank so we didn't also follow you know the typical cookie cutter approach of how you win elections we went to the people that would benefit the most and turned them out in a special election after the super bowl Impressive, impressive. And yeah, I know a lot of our listeners, of course, are DSA members who put a hell of a lot of time yeah. and energy collecting signatures, uh, spring volunteering for the campaign, going in the apartments. And, you know, it was a central priority of the Seattle chapter of DSA. So good to hear you say that. Do you think, I mean, what, what role do you think DSA played in, in the victory? I mean, I, I, we wouldn't have won without DSA. Um, we wouldn't have won without Washington Can and volunteers. But DSA not only was one of our strongest signature gatherers, I don't know if I can name drop, so I just won't, but they know who they are, strongest signature gatherers, and then also just getting into those apartment buildings. Also, DSA was one of the only endorsing organizations that was out canvassing every weekend during um, GOTV, I'm sorry, Get Out the Vote, um, and then also hosting text bank parties and just rallying people behind this, donating money, um, just we, we couldn't have done it without DSA. That was Tiffany McCoy, Advocacy Director at Real Change and Co-Chair of House Our Neighbors Coalition, which led the fight to pass Initiative 135, creating a radically democratic, tenant-led, public social housing developer here in Seattle. In the second half of my interview with Tiffany in the next episode, we talk about what it will take to fully fund a social housing developer about Tiffany's trip to Vienna last fall and her tour of the, their world-class social housing system, and also about what is possible to achieve in this era of capitalism in a wealthy city like Seattle. 
It's great stuff, but you'll need to tune in to our next episode to hear all that. Right now, we'll turn to our second interview. On April 11th, I sat down with DSA leaders Sydney Province and Rami Khalil to get their perspective on the fight for social housing. Sydney is a data scientist and co-chairs Seattle DSA's Housing Justice Workgroup, which played a big role turning out DSA members to collect signatures and knock doors. Rami Khalil is a union teacher, a member of DSA's Reform and Revolution Caucus, and part of DSA's local council, the chapter's elected leadership, which kept the fight for social housing as a top chapter priority over the last year. Well, Sydney, Rami, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Why don't we begin with you, Sydney? As co-chair of Seattle DSA's Housing Justice Work Group, you played a central role leading our chapter's efforts to pass Initiative 135. What are you most proud of about the role of DSA in this victory? Yeah, I think the main thing that I'm really proud of is just watching how everyone really came together to get this over the line. Um, We started out pretty early in the signature gathering phase, um, and we definitely had a couple of, you know, just all-star efforts of people who went out and would gather like over a thousand signatures, um, come to all of our events and things like that. Um, But I think uh, it was most impressive just watching the individual contributions of a community come together. Um, I'd have people come up and apologize to me because they felt that they only, you know, got 10 signatures out of their neighbors or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But, you know, I'd be picking up signatures from, say, 10 other people. That's 100 signatures right there, which is kind of the essence of grassroots organizing, people just doing what they can to get things over the line. Um, So that was a really uh, good introduction to me, I think, for the Seattle DSA community. Um, The other thing I'm really proud of is during the get out the vote phase um, is we really took the lead on the renter turnout strategy um, and just going in and making sure that we were very directly talking with renters, making sure that they were aware how this election would impact them um, and getting them out to vote. Um, We did this both by uh, handing a data set we had been working with over to Han, um, in which we had been tagging probable renters in Seattle, um, so we knew where renter dense areas were, um, as well as just directly going into apartment buildings um, and speaking with people directly. Uh, so I think those are really what I'm proud of. Yeah, no, that's super impressive work. And when I talked to uh, Tiffany McCoy, uh, you know, who ran was co-chair of How's Our Neighbors, that was one of the main things she emphasized about DSA's role as like the boldness of a lot of DSA activists to find their way into apartments one way or the other to make sure, you know, that renters were turned out for this crucial vote. Yeah. I mean, we were definitely running a sneaky little, uh, uh, I don't know, squad of people, you know, willing to go in like, hey, we got a, we got a building over here. Let's go yep, in. Let's yep. knock doors. Every single door. Let's do it. Um And I think that really made an impact in the end. Awesome, awesome. Well, Rami, as part of the local leadership of Seattle DSA over the last year, pushing for the initiative uh, to remain a top priority of the chapter, do you have anything to add to what Sydney said? Um, Well, I I think it's just really impressive that we were able to pull off this victory. The fact that the the election took place in in February um, is a a tougher electorate. Valentine's Day, right? (laughs) Valentine's Day. like when there's a presidential election or a big election in November, you have a big turnout of voters and that brings out a lot more working class people, immigrants, students, and so forth. But in these February winter elections, it's mostly richer people, white people, elderly people. And, and despite that, we pulled off a victory. And so I think, I think you know, and, and we're seeing other similar victories for ballot initiatives all across the country around abortion. Um, we've, seen, we've seen progressive victories in Tennessee recently and Wisconsin and Chicago. Um, in different races. So I just think, I think we shouldn't underestimate like how deep the problems are in our capitalist society and how much ordinary people do want progressive change. Um, but it really takes groups like House Our Neighbors and DSA to like step up and like um, organize and, and mobilize. And especially um, when we have socialists in the leadership of the campaigns, they have this, this confidence in um, building working class movements, like, like what Sydney's saying about um, going out and talking to renters and uh, really building a grassroots movement, going door to door and involving ordinary people, I think is a winning strategy. Like there's people that are hungry for this change, but we need activists to step up and like organize these grassroots movements. Awesome. Well, you both um, co-authored, I thought a really excellent article on the Seattle DSA blog about the victory of Initiative 135 
and laying out the next steps in the fight to fully fund social housing. You spend several introductory paragraphs taking aim at the neoliberal idea, which is so dominant even in a lot of left-wing circles, frankly, this idea that the solution to the housing supply shortage, to housing affordability uh, crisis, is zoning deregulation to encourage private sector development. And of course, I think most DSA members do think there needs to be changes in zoning. So it's not to counterpose that, but that um, often is presented as sort of the solution uh, to these crises. So Sydney, do you want to um, take a crack at you know why you think or why you explain in the article the strategy is going to fail? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big issues that you run into um, that we're seeing is a lot of people really want kind of a, a silver bullet um, for the housing crisis, just like one solution that they can advocate for that they think will make an impact. Um, and, you know, I'm not denying there's a housing shortage, like there is 100% a housing shortage. But I think the problem comes from the idea that if we just kind of keep doing what we are doing in terms of private development, um, that that will be able to solve the housing crisis, that that will be able to remove the encampments that we're seeing and kind of, you know, stop the flow of people out of the city as they get displaced. Mm -hmm. um, I think one thing, if we kind of look at this on different levels, um, one thing that I'd note is if we look at like how how do most new units flow into the, the Seattle ecosystem, it's largely uh, coming from large apartment buildings. Most new units are added uh, in apartment buildings that are over 100 units. Um, and I think one of the problems we see in that is that, you know, the only people who can really kind of pay to play in that ecosystem are large real estate developers um, who aren't building, you know, housing out of the goodness of their hearts to solve the housing crisis. Mm -hmm. um, what we see are, you know, people who are motivated ultimately by profit, by scarcity in the housing right. market, who want to be able to make money off of that. Mm -hmm. um, and to be fair, I think uh, to upzoning is I think a lot of that revolves around the idea of filling in the missing middle um, with duplexes or quadruplexes um, and the idea that kind of smaller landlords or mom and pop landlords would you know, step in and take over, which I do think is great for renters having kind of a, a diversity of options. But ultimately, you run into the same problem of you're still paying a, a middleman, right, for your housing, um, who is ultimately motivated by profit. Um, and I think there's a lot of anger, I think, with uh, people around how we do affordable housing in Seattle, because they're aware that we've been throwing money kind of at a problem into private entities be it through tax breaks to developers to develop, you know, a few affordable housing units that are not long-term, not sustainable, and not really affordable. Um, or if we are throwing money at this kind of patchwork quilt of not-for-profits, a lot of whom do really good work, um, but is probably the, the least efficient answer to this problem. Um, and I think that's really why people were motivated to want to try something different, something that has been proven in other countries, uh, just allowing renters to live in a place where they can grow in place that acknowledges that, you know, most people who are low income might not be so the entirety of their lives, but won't be able to necessarily compete in the for-profit housing market. I think it's important people uh, imagine what a public sector alternative to the capitalist housing system looks like. I know there are limits to what uh, could be achieved within one city in the framework of capitalism but with the threat of capital flight and all of that. But putting that issue aside for the moment, Rami, what would it look like uh, if DSA swept to power on Seattle City Council over the next couple of election cycles and gathered the strength to tax big business, to fully fund the social housing developer, and to fundamentally reshape housing policy more generally? Like, what is a socialist vision for housing in Seattle over the next 20 years? Well, yeah, I, I think... I think there is a really deep housing crisis under capitalism, and we do need uh, a fundamental alternative. Um, like it's really pathetic, actually, uh, that we live in one of the richest cities in the world, and yet there's this enormous housing crisis with tent encampments everywhere. And I think that the the for profit housing model that Sydney talked about is just not working. It's like a total failure, and it, it is time to have an alternative socialist vision. Um, so I think that would look like one everyone being housed for, you know, there's no reason that we can't have housing for everyone. And I mean, not just like the kind of public housing that we're used to, but like really high quality, um, decent housing for everyone. Like we, we know of like 
uh, really nice college campuses that that people enjoy living on. Like, why can't we have that for everyone? Like, we should have a socialist housing model would have decent quality housing, would have green space, would have gardens, would have places for people to play sports, um, laundry facilities, cafes, um, childcare. So like wraparound services right there at our housing uh, neighborhoods. Um, and and a key thing also is that this should be paid for not by ordinary working class people, but by taxing billionaires and taxing corporations. That's a key part of a social strategy. But also ultimately what we really want to see is, is decommodifying de housing. In other words, that like housing should just be a public good, that everyone is guaranteed um, it, it's housing for everyone, not just the poor, but for all for all people. Like right. um, the Seattle Times says that we need 20,000 more affordable housing units, um, which I think is, is urgently needed. But if, if DSA or a bunch of socialists or independent people got elected to the city council and the mayor's office, I think we should build tens of thousands of units. Like I know in in like Britain and 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 in Vienna, they have like sixty percent of the population living in public housing. Like that's the kind of scale of housing we need. And if we build tons of social housing like that, it would actually also bring down the it would put a downward pressure on the rents that the people renting in the private housing right. market would face. So, so it would a big public sector would actually be a a huge way to bring down rent. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a vision that most people could get behind um, in, in Seattle and, and nationally, really, if it was presented to folks as a, as a realistic possibility. Totally. Well, the article you both wrote focuses a lot on the fight to fully fund a social housing developer uh, that was created by Initiative 135. You point out that, quote, I-135 does not require the city to fund a public development authority and find an ongoing funding source for um, to keep it afloat. The city will only allocate an initial 750000 to get the social housing program started. So Sydney, you and others in Seattle DSA have done some important research into the huge corporate uh, real estate landlords um, and the growing role of major financial institutions and these real estate investment trusts. Your article calls for taxing these huge corporate real estate companies to pay for social housing. Can you give our listeners a fuller picture of their role and the, the role of these mega landlords in the Seattle housing market and you know how you would propose to tax them? Yeah, um, so the Housing Justice Working Group has been working with a lot of data from King County Assessor. And one of the questions we've been trying to ask ourselves is just what does the residential real estate market look like in Seattle and how does that compare to national trends? Um, and then the other thing is we just wanted to understand who are some of the larger players in the rental market in Seattle. Um, this is all like nominally public data, but it can be very difficult for, I think, people to access, mm -hmm. given that a lot of the time it's hidden behind kind of a web of LLCs. Um, and one of the things we've found when talking to tenants is that a lot of people don't actually know who their landlord is. They might right. interface with like a property manager or something like that but they have no idea who actually owns the building or how to find out how many other buildings does my landlord own. Um, so I think one of the things we were doing was just kind of testing out certain hypotheses. Like at the time, there were a lot of articles about um, national conglomerates that were buying up single family homes um, and then renting them back out to uh, people who would otherwise be homeowners. And we found that's actually a pretty negligible effect in Seattle proper but like a huge effect if you go down to Auburn or Federal Way, where you have these very large uh, real estate companies that are buying up land, um, such as uh, Invitation Homes, which is based out of Dallas, or I think American Homes for Rent, which is based out of California, um, just kind of buying up hundreds of homes in a certain area. Uh, whereas if you look at somewhere like Seattle, you see these kind of large real estate companies, maybe not national, a lot of them are actually local to Seattle or Bellevue or the Puget Sound region, a couple out of California, um, who are buying up condos. Um, I think in our analysis, we found, based on the King County Assessor data, that about 15% of condos are owned by people who own multiple condos, right, with the implication that these are being rented out, um, what would otherwise be owned by people. Um, but I think one of the, the more interesting things is if we looked at large apartment buildings, um, the findings aren't really that different than if you look at like a national top 10 list of real estate holdings, right? 
Um, the top 10 owners of residential real estate isn't that different in Seattle than it is nationally. We have Graystar, um, which is one of the largest, um, uh, owns one of the largest number of residential housing units in the United States, which is a privately held company. Um, and we also have a ton of real estate investment trusts, such as Avalon Bay, um, Essex Property Trust, or Equity Residential, that are growing their portfolio in Seattle and King County. And one of the reasons this is kind of particularly noxious, um, these real estate investment trusts, is these are you know public companies that are traded um, on public stock exchanges that are actually beholden to shareholders to maximize their returns. There's a huge incentive to keep increasing the amount of revenue that these properties generate. Right. So their incentive structure is to continually raise rents, um, and attempt to decrease costs, usually on maintenance on the properties. So, you know, what we're looking at are properties that are marketed as luxury properties that are likely going to end up the urban blight of the future. Um, but the most fascinating thing we found, though, is if you map out these large firms and where they operate in Seattle, they have a territory. Um, and these territories don't really overlap with one another. Um, and if they do overlap, it tends to be because they're catering to a very different market. For example, in the U district, you might see, um, multiple companies, but they'll be marketed towards say one for like undergraduate students, um, another for like kind of older professionals or something like that. Um, so let me just make sure I understand what you're saying. They have territories. So some, one company will focus on, you know, North Capitol Hill and another Belltown and another, um, university district or what have you? Is that what you mean? Usually neighborhoods. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, some, I think in some neighborhoods that are very renter heavy, it's more of a block by block thing, but wow. there's definitely a, a territory. <laughs> uh, it's a little gangland, honestly. Mm. Um, and we can't prove it, right? It was just very conspiratorial, but it's hard not to look at a map and kind of wonder if it's almost by design that these companies don't really seem to compete or at least seem to set themselves up so that they don't have to compete with one another. Um, and this kind of hypothesis that we have real estate companies that are acting a bit like a cartel, I think was really hammered in um, when the RealPage lawsuit came out. Um, and RealPage is a, a real estate pricing software um, for rentals that property managers can use to um, effectively figure out what is the highest rent they can charge for a property. The problem being that the algorithm is fed by data from all of these very large real estate companies like Graystar, Avalon Bay, um, feeding in information to this algorithm. So effectively, they have access to pricing data that would otherwise be private. That is now effectively companies colluding with each other, which is the essence of the real page lawsuit. Hmm. Um, so there is some evidence that these companies are, you know, uh, working together really to take the empathy out of rental pricing um, and generate the largest possible rents they can get away with. They aren't competing with each other. They're colluding to drive up rental prices as high as possible. And there's this kind of interesting underlying fundamental question of how much of the rental market should one company be able to own? And how does that change if you see a number of companies, all of which are large, that maybe own, say, 5% of the rental market, all working together to collude to drive up prices. I mean, effectively, you have renters that are working under a housing monopoly. Um, and it's not just that it's ripping off renters by making them pay exceedingly high rents, which is definitely the case, but there's also sort of the, the cost of human suffering that I think gets ignored if it's homelessness or people who are being displaced from where they live, who can no longer live near their jobs or where they grew up or near their families. Um, so a lot of what we're, we're pushing for as far as being able to tax these companies is sort of a, a restorative justice, right? Uh, currently, we tax working people to try and generate more affordable housing to offset these companies' business practices. And a handful of people in companies have gotten filthy rich by eroding the quality of life and skyrocketing rents in Seattle. Um, and this is for you know the price of a basic necessity, housing, um, really at everyone else's expense. So a lot of what we're proposing is that any proposal to fund social housing should be placing the bulk of the tax burden firmly on these large companies that have been preying on renters in Seattle. Yeah, there's an example in Tacoma where we're you know we're doing a renters' rights campaign there, where a private equity firm out of Bellevue, so it's not some New York firm, but whatever, bought up uh, Union Air Apartments. It's a uh, um, I think it's ninety some units and overnight raised the rent 60%. And these are apartments where actually they had been long-term affordable housing. You know, there's a lot of retirees and fixed incomes. Um, 
you know, we talked to several residents who came to one of our meetings to talk about what they're facing. One had been there for 20 years, another for 15. And, you know, they launched a petition. They tried to get meetings with their new landlord, um, never, you know, got a proper call back. Um, and, you know, the short of it is, you know, they, they feel very powerless and a lot of them are stuck either, uh, you know, they can't afford it and they are going to be facing eviction or they're moving out. But a lot of them say they're just having to absorb it because honestly, you know, the cost of moving, the need to come up with, you know, multiple months rent, all of that, uh, you know, is, is also not viable for them. So, you know, it's a, it's a real life changing life crisis producing event for a lot of these folks, but you know, the, I'm sure the private equity, uh, owners, uh, you know, that's not their concern and they're just making money and, but lives are being wrecked in the process. And Washington state is a great place for them to operate as it has the most regressive tax code in the nation. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic that they, you know you tax get to, these bastards. Right? <laughs> it's fantastic when you get to make money off of it, and you know none of those proceeds have to go to support the communities that you're ultimately harming. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's great for them, I suppose, but not the not that great for everyone else. That was Sydney Province, co-chair of Seattle DSA's Housing Justice Work Group, and Rami Khalil, an elected member of Seattle DSA's local council. We'll feature the second half of both their interview and the rest of Tiffany McCoy's comments in our next episode. If you like what you heard today and want to make sure we continue improving this podcast, please become a monthly sustainer. To maintain my part-time position as Seattle DSA's communication organizer alongside our chapter organizer staff position, we need to raise over $2,000 a month in steady income. Go to seattledsa.org backslash podcast today to contribute what you can. Again, that is seattledsa.org backslash podcast. This was the second episode of Social Sound, a production of Seattle DSA. Thanks so much to Luke Wigren for putting in the volunteer hours to help record this episode and to both Luke and Charlie Spears for mixing the audio. I'm your host, Ty Moore, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you.